When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So a Christian, a Jew, and a Muslim walk into a podcast, and they talk about how those different communities have been trying to get along in the United States and how critical social justice ideology is threatening what progress they've made. And beyond the progress that those groups have made, also the very fabric of liberal society. And while there may be some punchlines in this particular podcast, the content is no joke. Introducing David Bernstein and Suhail Khan. Fortunately, my hair is not doing well here. <laughs> I don't have the budget to fix that in post. <laughs> oh, okay. We're just going to have to roll with it. So, uh, how do, are you guys um, connected? Or through? Hi, you're Suhail. So, uh, go ahead, David. Oh, how are we connected? Was that the question? Oh, yep. Okay. So, so Suhail and I both are part of a Muslim-Jewish dialogue or institute. It's called IJMA. It's the Inter-Muslim-Jewish Alliance. Um, we're both on the executive committee of that. We're both been affiliated with Muslim and Jewish organizations. I was until about two months ago the CEO of a national Jewish advocacy organization. Um, I think we've probably both been doing Muslim-Jewish dialogue for a long time. And we both um, have some interesting and similar insights into how critical social justice plays into dialogue and how it might actually interfere with our ability to do authentic dialogue with each other and build relations between our two communities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And are you, uh, is this uh, inter-Muslim Jewish Alliance, is this focused mostly in America or is it international or what is the purview of this alliance? It's American um, and uh, we focus, you know, primarily on issues with American, the American Muslim and Jewish communities. Um, of course, one of the, you know, elephants in the room in that conversation is always the um, Arab-Israeli conflict. So it has that international dimension. Hmm. Um, but um, but it, the, the challenges that we are discussing um, as part of this dialogue uh, are primarily uh, American challenges of, um, you know, the BDS movement, the cancel culture, um, what are the, the terms of those conversations? Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have the generational divides both between the American and the Jewish, uh, uh, American, American Jewish and the Muslim communities. Um, we're in interestingly and probably not surprisingly younger um, American Jews and Muslims are much more hardline when it comes to the terms of those uh, of those dialogues and so it seems like the older older mm. community members are the more open so it's kind of counterintuitive in that way um, but that's some of the and then one thing that's very unique about our dialogue um, 
because there are other efforts between the Jewish and the Muslim communities is that we specifically uh, aim to tackle the more difficult issues rather than kind of sidestepping those. So um, that's one of the reasons why, you know, we're coming to you today is because we want to talk about the tougher uh, topics that are traditionally not discussed in polite company as, as we're taught when we're younger. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are, what's a uh, sampling of those, uh, uh, third rails. Well, uh. well, you know, I so we obviously there's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but also there's anti-Semitism and Islamophobia or anti-Muslim bigotry, whatever you decide to call it. I'll let Suhail describe it. Um, we we set out to talk about anti-Semitism in um, in the Muslim community and Islamophobia in the Jewish community, and um, mm. and and see if we could be better allies with each other. So if there's a Jews engaging in anti-Muslim bigotry that we call them out and vice versa. Um, what's interesting here, though, is that under the terms of sort of the modern conversation, which is based on sort of this standpoint epistemology, you know, that of lived experience, each community is supposed to be able to define racism against it. And um, we feel that that's very problematic. Um, we could have, and this is really Suhail and I think, and I speaking, not necessarily the whole group, but um, if we would have asserted that you must agree that anti-Semitism is exactly as what we, we say it is, which is, um, among other things, anti-Zionism, the dialogue would have probably been over. Um, and I think if, if, um, if they would have demanded that we immediately distance ourselves with some of the people who are most Jews, who are most critical of, um, quote-unquote, Muslim terrorism, we would have also um, had to leave. So those demands on each other would have made it impossible for us to remain in dialogue with each other. And it's actually because we're not bound by these sort of standpoint deferences and claims that we're able to actually continue to engage. Yeah, it's been very interesting, um, not without its controversies, as you can appreciate, but uh, it has been very interesting because we are, you know, taking on some of these much more difficult issues. There has been, the, you know, the good news has been, particularly post 9-11 and for, um, for a number of reasons post the Trump election, that the Jewish and the Muslim communities have come together, uh, despite some real uh, trepidations on both uh, communities' parts to fight discrimination against those respective communities, because as we know, there has been a rise in hate crimes against both communities. Um, but whereas David pointed out there has been some difficulty is when that animosity is directed from within our communities towards the other. Then it suddenly becomes very uncomfortable to talk about, as David articulated, anti-Semitism within the Muslim American community and anti-Muslim bigotry within the Jewish community. And to not only call that out, but to address those challenges and what you know we might be able to to do about it starting with our own respective communities and so we've had those conversations and oftentimes that inv includes naming individuals by name and mm -hmm. saying look this person and what they're saying and what they're doing is very 
offensive and hurtful and this is why and naturally you know when one finds somebody within their communities under attack the natural response is to kind of circle the wagons and, and become defensive and that's why this dialogue is so important to begin that process so just the correct amount of internal cancel culture then that's right, you know, on one, we actually bring up sort of, I won't call them suits, but we bring up sort of complaints about some, a figure in one of the other communities. And recently we had one, and I can't go into detail about it, um, because precisely because we decided not to go public. But what we decided, instead of making a public issue out of it, we would educate each other's community about anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. So we've had two sessions with the Jewish community with Muslim leaders and voices about Islamophobia and anti-Islamic Muslim bigotry. And I think we're about to have the first one, um, I think next week with, uh, with the Jewish community, with the Muslim community listening to Jewish leaders. So um, that's the kind of exchange that happens. You, we didn't, we didn't actually go the route of trying to, you know, cancel the other's leaders who spoke out of turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's unique about these dialogues that we've been having and in the public facing dialogues that David referenced is that our target audience is not kind of the public at large or even the larger Jewish or Muslim American communities. It's really uh, activists, uh, leaders, uh, civic and political leaders within those communities who, again, um, you know, in their everyday life, maybe working with others, uh, other religious leaders, um, you know, in their professional uh, and civic capacities, but may harbor questions, doubts, um, even some stereotypes and animosities towards the other. But again, because of fear of being canceled, because of fear of being called a racist or, uh, you know, anti-Semite or uh, anti-Muslim uh, mm. bigot, they, they are they are loath to bring up those questions. Um, you know, for example, one of the big questions that we had from one of our prominent Jewish American friends when it came to Islam and Muslims, they said, well, what about Farrakhan? You know, and this was a very legitimate question and it wasn't something that was coming from any place of uh, hostility or, or racism. But, you know, they said, well, you know, Farrakhan has said some pretty pretty hateful things, uh, and he calls himself a black Muslim, what does that mean? Uh, and it was interesting not only that he asked that question, but that, and, and I can tell you from the, the Muslim interlocutors were like, well, you're asking us that now, you know, but I, in my, in my own mind, I said, well, I'm glad they're asking it because clearly it's been on their heart for some time and they didn't feel they could ask it without being possibly taken as offensive, um, but they have legitimate questions, you know, and so we were, that was just kind of the first question out of the gate, um, mm. coming from a person who has very strong ties to the Muslim community, um, but for whatever reason hadn't had that issue addressed or resolved in their mind. So these two communities, uh, broadly speaking, uh, the Jewish community and the Muslim community, uh, they have a lot of uh, historical and uh, cultural um, reason to be against each other. A lot of habits and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of history there dating back to biblical times. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> so what are what some of the primary methods to overstep or to disarm those uh, those inherited and historical 
things that set you set these communities at odds with one another. What 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 is the primary bridge and 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 the the secondary uh, trusses and supports of that? Yeah. So the communities actually have a lot in common in terms of their religious traditions that we can sort of delve into and explore. Um, in some ways, it's easier to do Muslim-Jewish dialogue on a strictly religious basis than it is Christian-Jewish dialogue. And I don't know if it's the same for, for Muslims. We, we just we have a much more um, similar cultural heritage and, and so forth. It's not we're not the, we're not claiming that there's the same. The Jewish community is both an ethnicity and a nationality and a religious tradition. And that can complicate things. Um, many of us are uh, that are part of a Muslim-Jewish dialogue may not be as inherently religious. I mean, I, I'm frankly a, I'm a very committed secular Jew. Um, and, um, and sometimes when, um, uh, when my Muslim friends talk about God, it's a very different uh, Perspective. It's not often talked about in the Jewish community in the same way, at least in the non-Orthodox Jewish community. So there are differences there, but there's a lot to fall back on. Some of the customs are similar. We both have dietary restrictions, for example. We both fast on certain days, Muslims more than more than Jews. So there's um, there's a lot to deal with there. And what, but but um, groups like ours, this is a very high level group we're talking about. So many of us have been through all that, and we know the culture. So we were able to go to the more challenging issues pretty quickly, and I think that's really. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise uh, Muslims and Jews who are just getting to know each other to start there. Start by talking about what you have in common, and then go to difference. Uh, by the way, that's a criticism I would have almost over a lot of diversity training programs as well. I mean, they start with the the differences and the tensions rather than okay, what makes us uh, what makes us united. What do we share in common before you talk about differences? And I think, again, that's another thing I would learn from Muslim-Jewish dialogue. Yeah, I would, I would add to that. You know, my, uh, my experience was a very different in the, from the stereotype, at least, of one of conflict in that, you know, I grew up as the only non-white kid in Orange County in California uh, in my elementary school. And again, you know, it was my Jewish friends who I felt some uh, community because of what you know David was articulating the fact that you know I couldn't I couldn't have the the pork sausages what that was part of the lunch menu that particular day um, you know and when we went shopping you know my mom would would load up on the Hebrew national hot dogs you know and I grew up with eating a lot of kosher foods and, and on airlines back when we used to have full meals on airlines so I'm showing my age. We would order the kosher, kosher meals, you know, um, because, you know, from a Muslim's perspective, kosher food was 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 considered, you know, completely permissible. Um, and so there was a lot of, uh, you know, community, a sense of community, even before I even met a Jewish person, um, just from basic dietary, you know, every kid, no kid wants to feel left out, uh, you know, in, in the in the cafeteria. Um, and so. Um, you know, my my mother was going to college when I was was little, and her study partner, you know, happened to be Jewish, and so I, you know, got exposed to, you know, some of the uh, different cuisine and and uh, the customs and and the holidays, and again, being that 
they were like my holidays, not part of the then predominantly Christian culture. There was a sense of community and that, hey, we're in this together. Uh, we're the we're the two guys that, you know, are going to be going to the Chinese restaurant on Christmas Day, you know. Um, so that that wasn't so my experience growing up was one of of of, of allyship. Um, it wasn't until, you know, I was old enough to begin getting involved in the conversations about Israel and Palestine and other types of issues that suddenly there were rifts uh, that began to form. Okay. And that that became, um, you know, more loud and pronounced as, particularly as the Muslim American community began to grow uh, in 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 uh, in political and and uh, other strengths in the United States, and some within uh, the Jewish community saw that as a threat. And to be fair, many Muslims were very, uh, you know, vocal. In their criticism, not only of Israel, but then of, in, in stating and making very anti-Semitic comments, um, and mm-hmm. so those types of, uh, so you know that type of uh, rhetoric uh, from a, from a few, unfortunately, really served to poison the well of dialogue between the two communities. Again, on a much more um, national level, you know, person to person, you know mosque to synagogue on a local level, there's been a history of very good relations. But uh, when it came to institutions and leaders, that's where the, the conversation began to, to become poisoned. And that's why we're trying to unravel that, uh, that uh, animosity today. So in an ironic way, in the secular field is where the sectarianism kind of starts to rile up. But in the religious field, uh, there's there's a lot of, uh, already a lot of connection going on. Oh, absolutely. In 2009, I was honored to uh, join with uh, um, a rabbi, Rabbi Jack Bemperad, uh, in organizing a trip of Muslim American imams to go visit Auschwitz and Dachau. And it was kind of the first of its kind for American Muslim leaders to go make that journey to visit the place where uh, six million Jews were murdered to speak with uh, survivors and learn of that that uh, horrific experience. And even before we left uh, the United States for this trip, I remember the rabbis and the imams were completely uh, lost in these very arcane religious conversations about, you know, the Bible and uh, the Quran and uh, religious injunctions about specific issues. And they were you know, they were, you know, what I would argue as a lawyer, you know, arguing about the number of, you know, angels on a pin head, uh, but completely in 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 it w- with a sense of, uh, you know, of religious and uh, dialectical uh, community. They were they were really just geeking out, if I can use that technical term, on yep. religious doctrine. Uh, and I just thought, gosh, you know, if people could just see this, um, you know sitting at the Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., these scholars, these Talmudic scholars and these Islamic uh, imams discussing arcane religious concepts completely and, and really enjoying the conversation and learning from one another, you know, again, it was because it was separate from politics. It was separate from, you know, the the more secular uh, and perhaps more mundane challenges that we face day to day. But from a religious perspective, they were they were completely of one mind. And with that as kind of the starting point of how you guys are building bridges and how those bridges are being uh, formed and maintained, 
to what extent or how does critical social justice, as we're going to call it during this talk, how does that do the opposite of building bridges? In what way is that harming or potentially harming this discourse? Yeah, so I think there's a few ways. Um, one is sort of the straitjacket of standpoint theory, which we talked about, where everybody starts to assert what the prejudice is against their own community. And again, that's sort of a dialogue killer. Like, how, how can you talk to somebody and really push back against them if you disagree with them when they have the absolute right to define themselves in your eyes? So I think that that's one aspect of it, which we think is disastrous. And we really, um, we've talked about this, really worry about the next generation of young Muslims and Jews who come at it with this idea that they get to tell each other what, what racism or Islamophobia is without any further discussion. I don't think that that's the way you get to know somebody else. Um, I, I think that the, the general culture of sort of victimization is, is really challenging for us. Um, I, I know Suhail and I were talking about this before this, uh, before this podcast. Um, you know, we both experienced, and I'll let Suhail describe his own, we both experienced prejudice gr growing up and at various times of our lives. When I was a kid, especially like a ninth grader in, in high school, you know, I experienced a lot of anti-Semitism, like coins thrown at my feet and swastikas written in my book and, and so forth. And yet I never saw myself as oppressed at any point. Maybe I wasn't oppressed. Uh, maybe that's not the same level of oppression that um, other minorities might face. But still, I think that self-definition didn't make me think of myself in um, as playing that role in American society um, as a as a victim of, of, of white supremacy or domination. I think that when you don't carry that burden with you, you're able to engage with others um, on sort of equal footing. You're not you, you don't have a claim against anybody, even if you have a claim against somebody. Um, you're, you're just engaging people because, you know, it. It's good to know your neighbor. You know that you're going to build a better society by getting to know your neighbor. Um, and uh, you can have very rich conversations that advance not just relations between you and the other group, but between your group and many other groups that leads to a, a better civil society. Yeah, I would add to that, um, that you know, a couple of the challenges when it comes to some of the straitjackets as David articulates of these types of dialogues are just that. Number one, that, you know, one person is inherently uh, a, a bigot or a racist because of their, you know, their religion or their race, uh, that another person is by definition, perhaps without saying it, you know, always going to be the victim. Uh, and there's that, that you perpetuate the sense of, of victimhood in a particular community. Um, I think that really becomes very counterintuitive, uh, a counter a counterproductive, mm -hmm. um, and and is counterintuitive to the uh, to the goals of these types of dialogue, which is to bring reconciliation, to bring healing, and mm -hmm. to really uh, you know bring unity, whether it be within the religious communities or in our you know our body politic as a whole. I find that it often exacerbates those those divides and those challenges because one group is uh, labeled as um, you know inherently or systemically racist. Uh, there's no doubt there is systemic racism in our country. Uh, there's no doubt that we've had institutions, beginning of course with slavery, uh, that are inherently racist. But 
to label the you know the entire uh, American project as one built you know on racism and um, you know as Martin Luther King said the birth defect of of the United States was no doubt slavery but to define the entire american project by that that birth defect i think is very uh destructive and so um we are trying to as david articulated get away from pointing fingers at an entire community as being inherently one way or the other to accentuate and emphasize the commonalities in our communities uh and then where appropriate, where individuals of our community or institutions within our communities have uh, perpetuated stereotyping, uh, hatred, bigotry, to call them out, uh, not shy away from that, but not with the purpose of saying, look, this is just another example of why you're going to be racist and hateful towards me, uh, you know, uh, in in perpetuity, but rather to actually, uh, in a very... uh, uh, therapeutic way to address the challenges, uh, come to some type of resolution. Again, uh, we're not always going to agree, uh, and sometimes we don't agree. Uh, the issue, for example, of Zionism is very thorny uh, on both sides of the Jewish-Muslim uh, conversation. But uh, if I would never for a second demand that the Jewish community accept my definition of Zionism uh, going into the conversation prior to having that conversation, because the idea is not to score political points, but rather to ultimately bring us to get together as Americans uh, to, to to further the idea of of unity and uh, uh, and real dialogue and conversation. I think there is something embedded in your framing of seeking healing and reconciliation that is counter to currents within critical social justice that are taking up a reparation and redress uh, model of power redistribution uh, that then pits everybody up into camps of uh, you know, that kind of zero-sum game in a way of, uh, you know, correcting something rather than healing and, and going forward. So I think that that might be a clue, like the, the end goal, the talos and, and the uh, framing uh, is different between these two models. Right. That's right. You know, there, there, I've been lurking on some groups on clubhouse where there's young Jews and young Palestinians coming together, talking about issues. And the, the issue will sometimes be framed as one of justice or peace. There was one recent clubhouse gathering that I sort of um, sat in on, and it was fascinating. The Palestinians um, made very sort of strong assertions about justice, and you 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 felt that many of the younger Jews um, felt beholden to those assertions, de- deferential to those assertions, and I had this uncanny feeling the entire time that it wasn't a dialogue. Um, that it was one community that had stronger victim claims than the other. Um, and I don't think it's actually good for either community. I mean, I think it's um, t- to be in a discussion like that, I don't think you actually learn. I think you just have, the, um, you know, one community making its assertions and the other sort of asking a lot of questions and, and being very deferential, but tiptoeing around some of the issues and not making their own claims um 
you know, and and so I don't think that's the right model for engagement. I just don't think that you actually get anywhere that way. And I, I doubt that they're going to continue to have these discussions because you're going to go through the same exercise over and over again. It really does seem like Solomon splitting the baby. Uh, that, that kind of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Biblical you know, reference for anybody. Biblical ref- exactly. You know, and even taking it out of the Jewish Muslim context, you know, the model that I've seen just in my own lifetime is the South African model with Nelson Mandela. Um, by any measure, after he came out of prison and apartheid was finally abolished in South Africa, you know, the African uh the black African population of South Africa, um, if they were pursuing a strict justice model, there would have been, uh, you know, a revolution, uh, a bloody revolution in South Africa. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I would I would dare to say justice probably would not have been um, served in the long term of South Africa's uh, uh, you know, future, particularly when you compare it to what happened in in neighboring Zimbabwe. Um, but there, Nelson Mandela, in his uh, wisdom, despite his long imprisonment, uh, you know, sought to have what he called, of course, was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which again called out the horrors of the of the apartheid regime, but without that eye for an eye uh, justice called for you know, uh, uh, justice um, that in the end, again, does not result in the ultimate healing um, of the nation. Uh, So I thought that, you know, that was very instructive to me um, that, yes, you can be, like you said, Benjamin, you can be Solomon and just divide the baby. Um, But in the end, whose purpose does that serve? Uh, And probably neither community's purpose. Mm -hmm. Hmm. There's there's another element that I think is, problematic with it. While critical social justice is supposedly designed to protect minorities against the dominant majority, I think it actually, at least for Jews, is leads the opposite direction. Um, I think it, one, creates a permission structure for anti-Semitism. Once you're allowed to talk about a hierarchy, hierarchy of privileges, it's not such a leap to talk about Jewish privilege, which we've heard over and over again already. And that sounds an awful lot like the, the typical anti-Semitic trope on the right. Um, so that's one. Um, two, it'll disenfranchise a lot of Jews over time who feel more comfortable on the left in the Democratic Party. I mean, it'll become increasingly hostile for from for sort of mainstream Jews to be part of a uh, a party that um, that buys into this ideology wholesale and is that intersectional in nature. Um, and I think third, and maybe most um, Jews have done very very well in under liberalism. Um, liberal countries with rational discourse have provided a measure of stability for Jewish life that has allowed us to thrive. And I worry that when you have irrationalism on the right, which you do, and you have ir- irrationalism on the left, which you do, um, that's going to be profoundly destabilizing, destabilizing, and that's not good for the Jews, as we like to say. Hmm. So, Hill, could um, would you mind, uh, like, adding to that with uh, how you think or your perception on the Muslim community faring under liberal uh, Western democracy, uh, how, how that's been for that community and how it's going. And 
Sure, it's a it's a it's a thoughtful question. Um, I'll say it's complicated. The you know the American Muslim community, of course, you know it's not a community; it's communities. Um, you know, there's roughly six plus million American Muslims in the country. There, you know, a Muslim American living in uh, you know rural Texas is very different from a Muslim living in downtown Chicago. Uh, their life experience is going to be very different. But generally speaking, if you look at the uh, at the makeup of the Muslim American community with being roughly uh, one third African-American, um, you know, uh, communities that have been here since the very founding of our nation. Uh, and then the other two thirds being uh, roughly two thirds being uh, of an immigrant experience, like my parents who immigrated to Wyoming in the mid 60s. Uh, you know, the experience, speaking on that, for that community, the immigrant experience, I'll say is one of opportunity, one that, um, you know, as my parents always said, they chose to come to the United States, uh, fleeing oppression, uh, fleeing discrimination. In my father's case, he had an opportunity to to go to the Soviet Union. He declined that opportunity uh, because it was, at the time, a communist, atheist country. Um, But when he had an opportunity to come to to Laramie, Wyoming in 1966, he, he seized on that opportunity because, as his father said, I don't know much about the United States, but it is a God-fearing country. Um, and so he made that that journey the first time that he ever you know, got on a plane. And so there was a sense of optimism, of hope, of, uh, you know, America is not perfect, and it certainly wasn't in 1966, uh, but it was a country that uh, was w- working to perfect uh, for perfection, working to improve institutions, including for minorities, African Americans, and other recent immigrants. And so there was that aspirational ethos within uh, people like my father, my mother, and the, the millions of others who have chosen to make America their home. Mm-hmm. So that is definitely part of the American Muslim community. I grew up with that ethos, but what I do find uh, in recent years with, you know, uh, even members of my own family, with American-born American, uh, Muslims who uh, don't have that immigrant experience, I'm talking about the children and the grandchildren of immigrants, they are embracing what they are learning on college campuses, which is, again, that the American project is one based on racism, on exploitation. It's what, it is not one of opportunity, but rather one of of systemic exploitation, racism, etc., and so then it becomes uh, a feeling that well, and you uh, as an, as an, as a Muslim and a person of color are a victim, and thereby uh, never going to be given a fair shake in this society uh, because it's based on uh, irreparable, uh, 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 irreparably. Uh, racist and xenophobic um, institutions and 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 a platform that will never provide you justice, etc. And so that that I find again very destructive, uh, very hurtful. It causes uh, a suspicion about government institutions, about our democracy. You know, at its very at its very best. And you know, uh, I was talking to a. A friend the other day, uh, an older Catholic uh, gentleman, who said, "You know, I never felt fully cast. I've never felt." fully American as a Catholic until John F. Kennedy was elected in 1960. Um, and I thought that was very profound 
Um, you know, when I came to Capitol Hill over 26 years ago as the only Muslim American staffer on Capitol Hill, I, I definitely predicted, uh, having seen the institution function, that there would be a day that there would be American Muslims holding a congressional office. And to me, the sign of a healthy Muslim American community and one that was part of the American fabric was that you would have American Muslims who would be facing off on opposite sides of a given issue on the House floor. And we're not quite there yet. We have three Muslim American uh, members of Congress. They're largely on one, si- one side of the political aisle. Hmm. But they do differ even in their viewpoints on issues. And to me, that's not a sign of disunity. That's that's a sign of, again, as David points out, the liberalism in a healthy way uh, of um, the American project. Um, and so to me, that's an optimism that's inherent within the community. Um, the African-American Muslim community has a different experience because of their being African-American. But again, um, with the election of Barack Obama, to use the example of my Catholic friend, you know, I, I'm hard-pressed to see another country in the world where uh, a, a, you know, a person who is systemically oppressed can rise in a democratic manner to be elected popularly, not once but twice, against, let's, you know, white Anglo-Saxon males, uh, and, you know, by, by a popular election. To me, that, that's a sign of progress, of growth, and, and the uh, exceptionalism of the American project. Mm. There is, well, I'm, I'm uh, I guess, culturally and, uh, you know, uh, I was raised a Christian. Um, and uh, so we're kind of all children of Abraham, to borrow a term, uh, in, yeah. in, to different degrees. The history of the evolution of the concept of justice is principal, very central to all three of our traditions. And there's something about critical social justice that seems to be a reversion from that or a toppling of certain evolutionary steps that got us to a place where we uh, kind of expect disagreement and to use disagreement to get to some sort of uh, uh, agreement and some sort of uh, platform after uh, things are resolved. Um, I, I'm just that that's just kind of something that's coming up for me, like uh, the principle of justice. And what is that? And how is that a core to all three of our cultures? And how is that um, kind of under assault or, or uh, being dismantled uh, right now? Right. So, so w- one thing that comes to mind for me is the whole harm versus intent morality that I think flies in the face of at least Jewish tradition. There, there, you know, if you if you read about various Talmudic scenarios of um, these are very often very detailed ethical scenarios in which you know your ox is gored by somebody else's ox, and what do you do about it? It's always infused with the sense of what was the intent of the actor? Was it negligence? Did they did they take steps to prevent your ox from being gored? Um, that to me is a foundation of our current legal and moral system and understanding. And um, once you say, well, intent doesn't matter, it's just harm, which we're hearing now. And um, I don't, first of all, I don't understand how that scales in society. Um, imagine a society where people could just claim that they were harmed emotionally and therefore they should, uh, punishment should be meted out. I don't know what that looks like, what that means, and why anybody thinks that that's a good idea. But that's part of what's under assault here is this very idea. I mean, people are saying explicitly that asserting intent is a function of white privilege, which to me is absurd. And I don't know how you have a society that doesn't have some notion of intent that has both sort of deontological morality and consequentialist morality 
um, working together in some ways, and, and we're losing that in um, in this current critical social justice conversation. Um, and and I, I think that's one area where those of us who believe in the liberal project really have to fight back and explain why that's completely nonsensical. But it it, it is it, it certainly emerges out of our our religious traditions as well. There's nothing remotely Jewish about a, about saying that just harm matters and that your intent doesn't matter. You can't even make sense of half the crimes in Jewish law when you don't talk about intent. How is it that you have murder versus accidentally killing somebody because you made a mistake? I mean, obviously it's horrific either way, but the person is not guilty in any way, shape or form of the same crime. So I think um, I think we need to um, we need to start asking ourselves how um, people with uh, with these traditional moral sensibilities can say, well, what is your plan for running the society based on that? Mm-hmm. And so, Hill, do you, are there any lessons that we can draw from uh, Islamic uh, law and tradition about what we do with the victim, what we do with redress, what we do uh, the con- around the concept of justice and uh, the proper running of a society in which harm happens and, and dealing with harm? There are there are uh, many examples of that. Um, one that came to mind, uh, you know, bringing it right to the heart of the matter of the conflict in the Middle East is, you know, when um, the Caliph, you know, Omar uh, conquered Jerusalem, and was invited by the, the the Christians of Jerusalem to pray in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, which is considered, you know, one of the more holy places in all of Christendom. He declined, um, not because of any, um, uh, you know, dislike for the for the Christian Church, but because he didn't want to give, even as a conquering uh, general, did not want to give future generations of Muslim. Muslims who would be living in that area an excuse to somehow convert the church into a mosque or to lay claim to the church um, because you know he as the leader of the Muslim armies and of the of the uh, the Muslim nation state had prayed in that particular location and we know of course there are other examples where churches were uh, converted into mosques, and so I'm not saying that that, that didn't happen. Uh, you know, the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople is another example of that. But he, in that instance, I thought showed great wisdom that even though, as a conquering general, he had every right, uh, and when that in that instance, not only had every right, but was invited to pray in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, he had the wisdom to decline. Of because of an interest for the Christian population in Jerusalem, and to set a precedent that uh, Islamically, from an Islamic doctrine mm. perspective, uh, places of worship are to be protected uh, um, in under Muslim rule. Again, that has not always been uh, the practice, and I always caution uh, both my Muslim and my non-Muslim friends that don't judge. Islam by the practice of Muslims, just as I wouldn't any other faith, um, but pra- judge it by the actual doctrine itself. Uh, in this instance, I would argue that he d- demonstrated great wisdom. Uh, you know, uh, in going even back uh, a few years before that, the Prophet Muhammad was married uh, several times. He w- he married a Jewish woman, Sophia, 
and she converted from Judaism to Islam. Um, but when he invited a Christian king um, from now modern-day Ethiopia, which is then called Abyssinia, uh, to, to Islam, the, the, the king, the Christian king declined and said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm, I'm good being Christian, but I appreciate your offer. But as a, as a, 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 a token of good uh, respect and good gesture, I'm going to send you a slave girl as a gift. And he sent a Christian girl, uh, Maria Koptia. Maria, of course, the traditional Christian name, Koptia. She was a Copt Christian uh, as a gift. And Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad married her rather than keeping her as a slave. And she remained a Christian. She did not convert to Islam. So I just use these as, as examples um, where, uh, you know, in religious practice and in doctrine, there are examples where magnanimity, uh, graciousness, and forethought were demonstrated that, um, you know, will hmm. hopefully to some degree offset many of the horrors that have been practiced by many uh, in the name of their faith, but I would argue contrary to their religious uh, 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 teachings. I think that it's possible to uh, superimpose uh that uh, what what you were just saying with identity, well, just swapping out religion with identity, where identity, all these different identities, be it cultural identity or racial identity, etc., uh, can be like the, there's something to be respected about that, where that is held to be something that you are and that I'm not going to violate, and that we're going to get along despite uh, the differences on on any given level in that way. And I was just you guys were making me think about the way in which uh, over history, commerce is how these different religions kind of figured out how to get along. Um, just the, the marketplace and trading in a non um, in, a, in a non-ideological way where we're just, uh, I have a good, you have a good and, and exchanging value. And I just wonder um, if that's some, uh, if, if we're missing some sort of non-ideological uh, marketplace at this point, because so much of uh, our uh, mind space is kind of taken, so much of our relationship uh, across differences has become an ideological uh, kind of uh, spat and, and back and forth. And, uh, and th there's really no neutral ground on Twitter. It's all, it's all war all the time in a way. Right. Yeah. And I, I worry a lot about this, that in some sense, it's shrinking diversity in the name of diversity. That if you actually look at how rich the diversity of relationships are, how different countries over many years, centuries sometimes, have actually had quite um, good relationships among various ethnic and religious communities, and how they thought about it, we're imposing this very narrow model of sort of intersectional relation intersectionalism on all these relationships and it makes no sense um the um the other day there was a there a young person who completely disagrees about everything i'm arguing now sent me the uh, this wheel of intersectionalism and um at the top there was privilege so if you were part of the groups at top you were privileged in the center there was not uh, domination. So if you were below the do domination line, you were being dominated by somebody of privilege. And at the very bottom was oppression. And all these groups were, were listed along the perimeter of this wheel. And I thought to myself, I mean, imagine that, like if that had been the model of intergroup relations in these countries 
That would never have worked. I don't think it will work in our society at all. And it completely claims to supersede every great thing that we've ever done in connecting with each other as human beings or as identities or as other communities. I think that's really sad. A colleague of, of mine recently told a story. Um, this is a colleague who's known for her opposition to critical social justice. Um, was told the story that a Nigerian professor came to her and asked for her help in trying to integrate into the new very woke environment on the campus. This is somebody from Nigeria who has perhaps some heterodox views that wouldn't easily fit into the woke atmosphere among other academics, is getting woke lessons from somebody who's anti-woke which is an incredible irony, but if you actually stop and pause for a second and think about it, it just shows you the absurdity of the model that this person is being, is potentially worried about being blackballed by the mostly white academics for not easily um, fitting into their uh, ideology. Um, and that person happens to be Nigerian. So I just think that um, that we're actually um, we're actually losing something in, in, uh, that's been built over hundreds of years of how groups can interact with each other and in trying to fit them into this ideological mold. <laughs> it, it's a reversion of justice, and it's also a reversion of uh, back to a it's, a. it's an odd sort of fundamentalism that says it's going to supersede all previous fundamentalism in some really sneaky way. Right. But what's, but what's so pernicious about it is that it it hurts the very communities that it's that it at least uh, you know claims to protect. To over 25 years ago when I was in law school, I had a very good friend who was in my class uh, who an African American woman from Chicago who you know I was not the top of our class and for those you know who have attended law school they'll know you're constantly ranked in law school so you know exactly where you where you are in the pecking order as far as your academic performance and she was either number one or number two in a class of 225 uh she was a university of chicago undergrad uh so uh, brilliant brilliant uh individual and one day when i was on my way out from the library to go you know waste time doing whatever and she was staying studying i saw that she was crying and so i i, I asked you know if there's anything i could do and she just said oh i felt i i'm just under a lot of pressure and i feel so alone and i said i asked why and she said you know as a um as a black student at this school and the school was you know predominantly white she said i feel that uh, i'm being told by my fellow black students that because of my rank like i said number one or number two in the class that she was trying to be white and the white students were ostracizing her because they assumed that she had gotten in under a race-based affirmative action program and that she was somehow being coddled as a student and that her academic performance was somehow because somebody was putting the thumb on the scale to help her out which of course was not the case she was working hard and very much different from what I was doing. And I just thought to myself in that moment, gosh, something is just really wrong here. That a person who is doing very well, working hard, putting in the time, who happens to be a black woman, is being ostracized by both 
the minority and the dominant community for different reasons, both completely wrong and, you know, based on complete falsehoods. But the, the tragedy and the victim of this uh, is the individual themselves who at least, you know, by the university standards, they, they are seeking to protect and to help. But they're, they're falling between these cracks. And it was something that just broke my heart. There's a a way in which um, uh, to, to draw on uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's uh, coddling of the American mind, uh, where they lay out that there's common enemy politics and common humanity politics, and to take that and to expand on it, there's a, a politicking or a way of getting along where we have a common enemy, and then there's uh, a way of getting along where we have a common project to do, a uh, common uh, preservation. And it seems like, um, not to be uh, uh, Western imperialist, uh, colonialist uh, oppressor or supremacist, it seems like liberal democracy might be something that it would be good for all of us to preserve. And because it preserves our difference and allows us to express our differences and then to uh, mediate those differences into something productive. Uh, and that, that, that project of uh, preserving that, just the mode of communicating across difference uh, might be what uh, allows us to, uh, you know, maintain that difference and also uh, escape what is uh, pushing us towards uh, back into a fighting and are all contentious power play uh, between all these different groups or, or for forcing that, that conflict and that animosity onto a common goal, be it like the, the colonialist state of America, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So that, that's a proposition. Do you guys have any hope or uh, bridges that you see for keeping that as a goal or reinstituting that in the dialogue that is now suffering under the creeping pernicious critical social justice thing that we've been describing. Yeah, so I would say that when, when the Suhail and I wrote a joint op-ed, we're on this podcast together, um, we're, we don't even, we're not even talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We're talking about how to preserve American democracy and liberalism. Um, and, and I do think that there's a lot of possibility there. I worry it's become more generational. The generational divide is much bigger than the Muslim-Jewish divide. That the, mm. the, the, the difference between myself and a 25-year-old Jewish person might be much greater in a lot of ways, certainly culturally, intellectually, than it is with Suhail. Um, Suhail and I understand, I mean, also, my mom asks, happens to be an immigrant, too, came to the United States from Baghdad, Iraq in 1963. I probably grew up very similarly to Suhail um, in that way, even even some of the, you know, international flavors. Um, <laughs> and... Um, and yet, you know, so I think there's a lot to build on there. And I would love to work with Suhail and others on building sort of a, a multiracial coalition for liberalism and liberal democracy. And I hope we can work on that. I, you know, I think I am optimistic in the long term um, because uh, I've seen the resiliency of the American project. Um, you know, my experience has been working in the political arena for the last 30 years, uh, including here in Washington, D.C., as I mentioned, working in Congress and then in the executive branch. Um, I have I have seen at the 
at its t uh, toughest, the American project is one of resilience, uh, of reinvention, uh, of inclusion. It's not that we're perfect. It's not that we get it right every time. Uh, often, you know, as uh, Churchill said, you can count on the Americans to do the right thing after they've exhausted all other opportunities or possibilities. And that's sometimes true. Uh, we have to, you know, screw up once or twice before we get it right. But the the model and the history and the tradition is that we do strive to get it right, um, that there is an effort to get it right. And unlike other uh, models around the globe, ours is not based on a particular ethnic or religious or racial uh, identity. Yes, there are some who would like to associate it with uh, a particular race or religion, etc. But generally, uh, the American project is free of those uh, of those hangups, and uh, that is demonstrated uh, by the very fabric of our country uh, every day. Um, and so, I'm optimistic in the long term, but I am uh, cautious about the short-term realities, because there are some, including those who are you know, proposing these type of critical race theory uh, ideas that do pit one religious or racial group against another. And that rather than seeking the, the, uh, the unique nature of the American project, of, of the uh, Constitution, uh, with including its challenges, but that's what the amendment process is all about, um, that they are seeking to emphasize the negative, the victimhood, the, you know, as David uh, articulated with that wheel, you know, the one uh, taking advantage of the other, uh, you know, and that I think is a challenge that could hobble our, our continued uh, growth and opportunity, which I'm, again, I I'm very confident uh, because of the institutions uh, established by in the Constitution, because of the spirit of everyday Americans, I'm, I have no worry that we will continue to prevail and continue to grow. But uh, you know, will that will that happen in a in a timely manner? Will that happen in you know in one generation or in, in several? That is at doubt when we have these very prevalent theories that are taking root not only on college campuses but increasingly in corporate America and other uh, you know larger institutions that perhaps out of being guilted or bullied into these or wholesale adopting these types of theories, even, again, with the best of intentions, will only exacerbate challenges and differences that we might have in our country uh, rather than and, uh, bringing us together. Yeah, Washington State has just, uh, they're just about to mandate uh, mandatory CRT, diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racist training, K through higher ed for all students and all teachers with, uh, with tests directly afterwards to see if they absorb these ideas. So, yeah. yeah, while several other states, red states, are are banning it altogether, it's an interesting dynamic where you're seeing it go in both directions. Um, I, I'm, I'm a little less optimistic than Suhail. Maybe I'll go with 60-40 optimistic. <laughs> pessimistic. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic by nature, and I think America has every reason to generate optimism and, um, and shows great resilience through the ages. But I worry that the process of social learning has come to, I won't say a halt, but has slowed significantly, that, um, that the cycles of learning um, be, from election defeat, for example, 
I'm not sure are happening in the same way that they used to. You know, it used to be that when when Republicans lost an election, they they gravitate toward the center. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, it used to be when Democrats lost an election or when they lost ground, let's say, um, um, in the House of Representatives, they um, they gravitated toward the center. I don't think that that's happening anymore because I think both parties, both wings, have been captured by ideological fanatics that are more powerful than any kind of learning allows, and so. So I worry a lot that 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 process that um, that has allowed us to grow over time, even after getting things wrong, uh, may not be um, working in the way that it used to. And um, and that we could be in a very, very dangerous area where uh, in 10 years from now, either things are going to be much, much better because we have figured it out and the, the forces of resilience and unity have overcome the forces of division, or we could be much, much worse off than we are now. And so I'm going to go with 60-40 with Suhail, but I'm much less confident <laughs> and uh, faithful, perhaps. Maybe that's a sign that I'm I'm Jewish and, you know, given towards, uh, you know, disbelief in some <laughs> I, I would, ways. I, I let you say that. David. You let me say that, right. But, uh, anyway, um, I, I'm 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 concerned about about these sort of um, centrifugal forces that uh, unleash in American society now. There's certainly a lot of work to do. There's certainly a lot of conversations to have and to continue having. And on that note, what are you guys up to uh, outside of this podcast and your op-ed? What, what projects are you doing, and what resources can we turn people on to? Well, as David articulated, we we definitely the the project of dialogue between the Jewish and Muslim community uh, that we mentioned is hosting a uh, a webinar uh, next week uh, by uh, prominent Jewish American leaders for a prominent predominantly Muslim American audience to kind of ask anything and discuss anything, uh, even the tough questions. Um, so we're we're going to continue in that uh, effort. And then beyond that, uh, we are endeavoring to, uh, to to address some of the challenges because our membership is made primarily of leaders, uh, both in the political and civic uh, uh, arena, to engage in some issues of uh, religious discrimination uh, globally, uh, including what's happening to the Uyghurs in China uh, and where uh, American leadership and international uh, joining with international partners might be asserted to help a, a besieged religious minority in, in that country. Um, so these are some of the projects that we're engaged in at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, obviously I'm involved in those projects as well. But in addition to that, I'm very involved in uh, supporting liberalism and opposing the imposition of critical social justice. I'm an affiliate with Counterweight, which is a UK-based nonprofit that you're familiar with, Benjamin, that um, that opposes the imposition of critical social justice. And I've done a lot of writing and work with Counterweight. Um, I'm starting with my partner, uh, Alana Redstone, a a firm called Viewpoint Worldwide, which works on diversity at the corporate level, with which introduces the idea of of viewpoint diversity for corporations that might neutralize some of the more uh, pernicious aspects of of, div- of ideological diversity. And um, a third thing I'm I'm working on now is what I think is going to be called the Institute, um, the, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, which hmm. um, is going to try to um, 
fight for liberalism within the Jewish community. I'm under talks with um, with some foundations and others to really establish this. The American Jewish community is important. It plays a central role in the discourse of the country. And, um, and if it's losing ground on liberalism, I fear that that's going to have a major impact on the rest of the country. So I'm, I'm going to be fighting very hard for liberalism within the Jewish community. Sounds fun. Sounds fun. <laughs> it's not for everybody, Benjamin. Spirit in public and on Twitter. I know you're used to it, but it's not for everybody. <laughs> it's a lot of talking. That's for sure. Well, gentlemen, this has been a fabulous conversation, very uh, expansive for me. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, allowing me to poke your brains with my questions. Thanks for having us. Really enjoyed it. So I'll end the recording there. And Great. congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.